Welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast, leading the way in the business of medicine. Now here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello everyone and welcome to the NSCHBC EDGE podcast. I'm your host, Terry Fletcher. The EDGE podcast is brought to you today by the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants. Our goal is to discuss healthy business principles, have conversations on the business side of medicine, so that you and your practice can thrive, be profitable and successful for years to come. Which leads me into our podcast topic today. As many of you know, the NSCHBC is a proactive organization with over 300 members, including legacy members that share their wealth of knowledge and expertise with each other, whether it be in the legal field, the accounting field, the revenue cycle management field, the business management field, or even value-based care field and more. We have every kind of consultant that focuses on the healthcare industry that you could possibly want. So today I'm very excited to have my good friend and healthcare consultant and educator, Christine Hall of Sterling Global Solutions. And Christine, welcome to the program. I'm so happy to have you on the EDGE podcast today. Thanks, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. I love the topic that we're going to challenge today. Me too. And just so everyone knows, Christine and I are, I'm going to just say it, we are telehealth gurus. That is what our title is known in the <laughs> uh, podcast world. So we, um, we've we been both educating and um, talking about telehealth, uh, auditing on telehealth. Now that's a big deal. And not just educating, but also training on it and explaining. But then the pandemic hit and everything we knew about telehealth kind of went by the wayside because of all the flexibilities. And then we had the extensions and it, it's one thing if during a public health emergency where they say, okay, for a couple of weeks, this is what we're going to do. But when it turns into three and a half years, yeah. <laughs> we, yeah. have, we have problems because now people are like, oh, this is great. We're, let's expand our business. Let's put the expense in this, or let's start doing things that we think we can do forever, even when there is no more public health emergency or virtual care may not be appropriate. And as our last HHS, um, I guess, director said, where she, or I mm -hmm. think it was even a Medicare administrator, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. Well, some of it is put back in the bottle and some of it isn't going into 2024. And that's what Christine and I are here to talk about today. Not in education webinar form, but we just want to have a conversation with our listeners about telehealth 2024, what's really appropriate, what to be what should be on your radar as far as you know exposure for your practice if you're inviting risk and then where the positives are so christine with that i'm going to kind of open it up to you on a couple of things that are now um, really part of the 2024 rules so mm -hmm. a couple of things that have come up and we're just gonna this is something everyone has to know so before January 2024, as of right now, so we're, you are to be using the place of service either 02 for a patient's not in their home and a place of service 10 when a patient is in their home. And 02 is actually going to reimburse at facility rates and place of service 10 will reimburse as if you're in person. But what they do in 2023, or what we did, was that you were supposed to use the place of service where the patient would have been had they reported in person, which became a mess. So, <laughs> so Christine, I'll let you take the place of service conversation. What do you think about the, the new change, which I like, I'm glad it's different now. Here's the thing, Terry, I think we've got to also remember that the most guidance that comes out is from CMS. 
Um, they're pretty straightforward. They release it timely. And uh, if you're active on social media like LinkedIn, you're going to see that everyone's pretty comfortable sharing that information that comes from CMS. But remember that a lot of the individual payers might also have separate rules. And recently I was working on an audit and I noticed that the commercial payers maybe didn't adopt some of the same rulings that CMS did when it came to how we report those visits. So we even during the public health emergency, there was a really long list of, okay, for this pair, we do this. And for another pair, we do that. Um, I, I wish that payers would fall in line with one overall consensus of guidance, maybe I following agree. what CMS puts out there. Um, but that is true what you were saying. So through the public health emergency, we were advised by CMS to report the place of service that we would have normally seen the patient and apply the modifier 95. And, and what that did was it made sure that professional fee, professional service providers or fee-for-service providers, that they were getting reimbursed at maybe that non-facility rate that they are usually reimbursed at rather than um, the, the facility rate, which was lesser, which telehealth was falling underneath. We were reimbursing at that. So they said, now that we're out of the public health emergency and we've we've gone through all of our extensions, moving forward into 2024, CMS will continue to pay for services via telehealth, but they're going to adjust that payment accordingly, whether the patient was seen in their home or whether the patient was seen in an originating site. So that originating site will continue to receive that reimbursement for utilizing that site that the patient is located at. Right. Which is usually, uh, if it's not in their home, they're saying it's probably going to be in the hospital or in, elsewhere. They don't, they don't want the doctors to get dinged for the patient being in their home, but they said that, you know, there is usually around a 20% reduction or facility rates. What, what I find interesting is what you were saying about the commercial plans. And this is interesting for the listeners to really know. I have heard from several commercial plans and Christine and I educate for payers as well. I audit for payers. And one of the things that I heard is that they resisted offering telehealth to what the expansion that Medicare did uh, internally. But they knew that if they didn't come up with a plan in 2020, they were going to be forced to either by HHS or, you know, um, some kind of executive order, which some states did. And so basically like, well, let's be proactive and let's do it. But mm -hmm. as soon as they realized that, you know, the country was opening up again um, in 20, early 2021 and, you know, vaccines and all that, they were like, okay, we're not doing this part anymore or we're not doing this anymore. We're, we're right. changing our coverages. So it, it was really important for practices to be proactive and know what um, commercial plans were doing. Uh, I think what was helpful on the Medicare and Medicaid, Medicaid was very strict, but mm -hmm. both of the, the government side is that we always had a black and white um, roadmap. So we, we had, you know, white paper instructions. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Sean Weiss, a good friend of, of Christine's mm -hmm. and my, who's also part of the NSCHBC, and we're on his, um, the Compliance Guy Roundtable podcast. He had asked me, he was doing an audit. He said, hey, I can't find the original guidance from Medicare way back in March 1st of the telehealth flexibilities. And I had it. He goes, can you, can you email me it? It was only 30 pages. Right. And now what is it? Uh, 230 mm -hmm. now it's, or it's like at least 185. I knew it's up there in the couple hundred. 
And so instead of um, they revised some things, but they started dating each entry now at the bottom, like when it became effective so that we we knew the timeline. And what's interesting as far as all the all the coverages and all the changes, all the flexibilities, um, when OIG comes in to audit and let's say they get help, like from someone like us, <laughs> I have to put out my timeline. I'm like, okay, the doctor mm -hmm. did this and this was okay from this date to this date. Right. And then the doctor did this or then the physical therapy did this. And there's certain dates where certain things didn't, weren't appropriate and certain things were, and you have to have this huge timeline of when you can, you know, say, well, they were right here or, you know, this was inappropriate. Right. And, you know, just kind of going in a different direction off the topic. One thing that still, I think this is going to be the bane of our existence, is audio only phone calls. So the oh 99441 to 443 codes that are in the CPT right now, they're going to be mm -hmm. deleted in January of 2025. But I think, well, I know people are using them inappropriately. They are, and then, and then you had brought up, um, you know, when we, before we started mm -hmm. that um, CPT 2024 was so insightful in letting us know when those codes are appropriate and they are, they have to be similar to the in-person codes or audio and video codes. It's just when a patient isn't able to do audio and video and I think doctors and practices and other providers who qualify for a virtual, they're taking liberties with these codes. They're saying, yeah. oh, well, I'm calling for, you know, test results or, or I'm letting the patient know I refilled their prescription or I'm scheduling a, a audio only. No, 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 you can't do that. Wait, and and it, we have to remember, it's an evaluation and management. Management, right. It's not a chat. It is to, to say, hey, here is a problem. We're evaluating that problem and we're coming up with the best way to manage it during this interaction. And not all interactions should be done over the phone. Well, how many um, providers do you have or clients that are saying that I'm calling to check in on patients so I'm charging a phone call? No. Absolutely you not. You can't do that. These are supposed to be, and actually Medicare put out some guidance, CMS did. Mm -hmm. They put out some guidance uh, last, I think it was April, and then it was in the final rule. And it said that you have to document when the patient, why the patient had to have an audio only versus an audio and video, which right. I was like, okay, now at least they're speaking saying, they're saying, you know, this is the last resort. This is, it has to be a replacement E&M service. It's not to check in. It's not to give test results. Right. You know, here's something, Christine. So I was talking to a couple of, a few coders about this and I keep using the phrase, well, prior to the pandemic and one of the coders, and, and this is my fault totally. She goes, well, actually I didn't get my job until 2021. And I just went, oh, shoot. Okay. <laughs> so she's like, I don't know what the rules were prior to the pandemic. And I have to be mindful of that when realizing the pandemic, you know, again, was three and a half years and some yeah. people didn't even start in healthcare until, you know, two years ago or three years ago. So but I think it's important, though, Terry, that we, we we share with our listeners that, you know, while we talk about the the growth that we've seen now during the public health emergency, just go back in time and think about 
we had a lockdown. We advised people not to leave their homes if they were immunocompromised. We asked them to please, you know, um, stay indoors to help prevent the spread of COVID. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. So like you said, prior to COVID, would you have gone to the office for a routine visit? Yeah, then you should be going to the office for a routine visit now. Maybe there we should have some criterias in place or we should encourage listeners to put policies in place of when is it really appropriate to have that telephone visit or even that audio video visit that's not a telemental health visit, right? Maybe just a regular uh, visit. When is it appropriate? Is it acute things? And, and what what acute things? Like a broken ankle? That's not really something you can do via telehealth. Um, right. Have some criteria in place that if you maybe you speak with your providers, your physicians, and you say what would be the right criteria, and put that into play. Now that we are outside of the public health emergency, we're trying to get back to somewhat of of normalcy. We want to keep telehealth. We don't want it to go away. Right. But in the same sense, we got to find some way to to make sure that there's some accountability there, that we're doing it for the the reasons that CPT, CMS feel that is appropriate. Well, remember there there's also the um, what is it? The C2C. Is that care to care? Is that the Medicare? Yeah, they put yeah. out this. Um, I don't even know what it is. Every once in a while, I, I stumble across it. But C2C, and that's cat to number two cat, uh, care to care. It's this document that uh, HHS and CMS put out. And they actually have within this document, and it's weird how they put it, They what is most likely appropriate for telehealth and what is most unlikely appropriate. I wish they'd be like, this is not telehealth and this is, but it's more of a, this is what you'd have to support and if you if it's if you're doing telehealth on where it's not likely then you might have to also defend and you know christine and i are on offense we want you to make sure that your clean claims are clean that you know if, if you ever get questioned or they say send records you're like sure what records do you want not you're like well let 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 me look first wait let me let me just check before it's like somebody stopping by <laughs> going one of your friends hey can i use your restroom um don't give me a give me a second <laughs> i was looking at that it was a bad analogy but i tell my daughter that because i'm like you know you know your house is clean when somebody stops by and can i use your bathroom you're like sure i'm like it's the same Absolutely. thing to me and, and opening records it's like yeah no problem and i i this <laughs> is such a bad analogy i'm gonna get cards and letters but when i when i think about you know what they said in that c2c and i use it in a lot of my telehealth webinars mm -hmm. They were talking about um, physical therapy was a big one. And you and I and talked about this before. Yeah. And it seems like just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so, uh, you know, patients don't always want their their spouse or their caregiver to have to be the acting physician or therapist or, you know, clinician. They want the actual person they trust to know if they're improving or declining or progressing or degressing or decompensating. And I had a, a neurologist tell me a story and he's like, he goes, you know, telehealth is great. And just so you know, Christine and I are proponents of it. We think it definitely oh, has yeah. a place in the delivery of medicine. I know it doesn't sound like it, but it does. But um, I had a neurologist saying, I had a patient, we did six months of 
care, which is uh, all telehealth and audio and video. And she the one page she didn't want to do one day where it was audio only. And he's like, I really wanted to see her. He's like, and then after that, he goes, you know, I need to see you in person. And she was when the last time he saw her in person, um, she had just the beginning stages of Parkinson's and she was like, oh, no, I'm doing better. But he said on the video, he could she was always in a chair uh, sitting upright or she was on the edge of a couch or whatever. And he really couldn't see what he needed to see from a neurological standpoint. So she comes into the office. She could barely get to the chair. When she got up off the chair, she almost fell. He said he feels like there was kind of a, a, a definite decompensation from not being seen in person. And well, that, Harry, that scares me. That's just really I, scares me. I, I'm, I'm just as guilty. I'm not going to lie. I have, I, I have a connective tissue disorder. So I do a lot of physical therapy and physical therapy via telehealth. I lie. Oh yeah. I'm making that range of motion. Oh yeah. I did 20 reps of that. <laughs> I lie. Patient. I am. I, I am a very bad patient. I need that accountability of being in the office. I need that, that therapist there checking to make sure I've done the extension correctly, that I've completed the reps there. Um, you know, I think that, that we do need to reevaluate that. And like you said, I love telehealth. I love it. Um, I tell the story all the time. My, my big six foot two husband had a total knee replacement and three days after surgery, they wanted him to come in for a check-in. So we take this giant man and we shove him in a car and we put him in an elevator and we take him up there and the doctor comes in for two seconds, looks down at the wound and says, that looks great. I'll see you in two weeks. <laughs> that could have been a telehealth visit, really. Been, and, yeah. Or will you pick your kids up after school and one of them has coughing and wheezing and maybe a little fever, you know, and, and the urgent care is not open. Telehealth is perfect for those types of scenarios. Um, but there's other areas that telehealth is not. Like I said, if I fracture my ankle, you can't help me to be a telehealth, right? So well, and, there's, and my there's a time and place. My father-in-law had an issue a couple years ago now that he's passed. But, and I've mentioned this before, I think on a past webinar, but uh, he had a rash and it was right at the height of the pandemic. He was 90, 91. And they kept saying, they kept giving him topical ointment. They said he couldn't come in because it was, you know, it was like March or April of 2020. And they did this for like four months. Well, the, when he finally was able to be seen and we weren't actually not really allowed to see him either because, you know, obviously they're yeah. like, hey, people can't go anywhere or whatever. And finally, I'm, I'm telling my husband, I'm like, we need to go see dad. We need to go see your dad and we need to see what's going on. And, and since, you know, I have a nursing background, he's like, okay, he goes, but it's, it's in an area, he's going to be embarrassed. I'm like, tell him, no, just let me look. So I looked, I'm like, we need to get him in. It was a palpable mess. Turned out six months after the first look at it on over telehealth, it was Hodgkin's lymphoma. Oh my It was gosh. stage four and it was now inoperable. And the doctor said, oh. yeah, four months ago, we might've been able to do something, but now we can't. And no. so it, it scares me. And he passed away three months after that. And it, so it really makes me nervous when I, when I see things like potential cancer things, or, you know, yeah. even going to the physical therapist, um, my husband's brother, he had a rare condition of something a few years back and he needed extensive PT. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic hit and 
they're like, okay, so um, we need your wife to come in. And his wife has rheumatoid arthritis. And she's like, she, my wife is not my therapist. You are. And I want to schedule an appointment. Well, we're only now doing uh, um, virtual. And I'm like, what? I didn't even think that was allowed, Christine. I thought you had to at least offer in person. And you. And I know Medicaid doesn't allow it. They're right. like, no, you have to offer. If the patient asks for it, you have to offer it. And I think I read Absolutely. something Medicare too. But yeah, yeah. It, it bothers me when when the default is virtual versus it's an option for delivery of care. So I, default should be in person like it always has been. And then if there's a circumstance where it's necessary to, you know, the patient maybe is out of town or the patient is just not physically up to coming in, maybe those are the appropriate, you know, virtual mm -hmm. telehealth opportunities or even well checks, not what we were talking about because, um, physical therapy yearly, those aren't covered under telehealth, right. but only annual well checks are. That's a, that's totally different. Doesn't involve a, a, an exam, but preventive medicine, yes. yeah, preventative, mm -hmm. preventative medicine visit that you see in the CPT, but yeah, those not are not covered. telehealth. Yeah. Just annual well visits, which are just, have you ever had, are you using your seatbelt risk, you know, risk factor reductions. Right. Um, but it's interesting to me when I, when I see telehealth being, and I hate to say pushed on patients, but telling them that's their only option instead of really trying to make that, that connection and, it's you know, that so physical crazy, Terry. In person. We, before the public health emergency, I mean, you and I have been in telehealth for a long time. Um, I fell in love with telehealth when I was watching the Jetsons on Saturday morning cartoons. But um, <laughs> we just really, aged ourselves. I, I know. Like, Who are the Jetsons? I'm like, oh, no, that's so funny. Check it out on the Cartoon Network. Anyway, <laughs> but well, and, and I would talk to providers even before the public health emergency to, to say, hey, you know, there are certain circumstances where you could utilize telehealth services with your patients. Maybe those patients that are not able to come in for a face-to-face -face visit, or if you had an after hours, maybe, you know, there are certain circumstances. And I did not get as much interest in telehealth prior to the pushback. Yeah, right. I was, they were, I couldn't get them to buy into it. And in like 2017, 18, I'm like, but, you know, you, you've got to practice that this would be great. Primary care, you've got pink eye, yeah. you know, kids or, <laughs> you know, you can see that over the video. No, you know, I, you know, they really need to come in. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so contagious. And, you know, medicine, you know, checks where patients yeah. are chronic conditions. They need to get mm -hmm. refills, but it's not preventative. It's more, you know, chronic, you know, stable, but let's check and see what's going on. Yeah, those kinds of things. Perfect for telehealth. Absolutely. But, and and now we're getting into, the, you know, the PHE happened. And now you've got practices that like, like you were just saying, no, 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 we only do virtual. Well, how did we get from, I'm not comfortable with virtual to everything is virtual in such a short period of time and not think about those concerns that were there just a few years ago. They didn't well, go think, away. I think the one thing that I believe that HHS and CMS thought was going to happen is that virtual care was going to lessen the expense of medicine because you don't have to have a full-time brick and mortar office. You can get rid of some staff because the doctors can handle, you know, just coming into a virtual room. They can do things, you know, differently. And, and I'm seeing that it's increasing some of that expense because it's, it's mm -hmm. an addition to, it's not instead of. And it, it's driving me a little bit nuts because I'm just seeing it be abused a little bit. And, 
I, I'm a little concerned with, you know, practices and providers that aren't utilizing it and understanding it's not a separate specialty. It's yeah. an additional delivery of medicine <laughs> and it's absolutely necessary. We have patients that absolutely can use telehealth and, you know, it, again, I, I think I have, I think the most, um, the provider I think uses it the most in, in one of my clients is a oncologist and not everyone is telehealth, but when he does, he does provide certain services, you know, going over their whole yeah. MRIs and, you know, their, their CTs and saying, okay, this is what we're going to do for radiation. This is what we're going to do for chemo right. after the patients already had, you know, the, the cancer surgery and gone through the, some of the protocols for post-op to me, that's absolutely appropriate. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's more, you're in the comfort of your home. Let's have a conversation. But when I see these incidental, just because I can, it, it just makes me sad because like you said, there is such a, there's such a need for it. There's a time for it, mm -hmm. but if you're going to abuse it and not use it when it's appropriate and reflect that it's a part of your practice instead of it's only your practice, you know, I have some doctors who haven't even come back from their home where they were seeing patients yeah. in their home and they're you know or not they're seeing them virtually from their home i should say right right and because and i don't know why cms extended the the, the virtual supervision <laughs> to through 2024 they didn't at first they said it was done at the end of the p pandemic and then they said well 2023 and then people complained and they said 2024 but i don't understand why they did that because it doesn't make sense to me and direct supervision well that's weird yeah i mean direct supervision means that you have to be immediately available. How are you immediately available if you're on an iPad or if you're on a computer? What if you have a patient that, to me? Yeah. What if you have a patient that codes out and you've got to, you know, and they've, you've got to call 911. I had, a, I had an urgent care ask me how to do telehealth virtually for their urgent care needs. I'm like, I got to go now. <laughs> this is oh not a gosh. phone call I want. I always laugh at my, my one call I had that I think was probably the best one that the, you know, the acupuncturist in 2020 that called me. And I, I'm glad I never got that after that. I was like, oh my God. I was like, you, you know, you're better than me. I'm, I'm a, I think I'm a pretty smart person, but if you can tell me how to do telehealth for an acupuncturist and, you know, oh my God, knock yourself out. But I, I can't see that, you know, teaching somebody to dry needle somebody. I don't think so. But, no. um, you know, I, I just get nervous and, and now, um, I heard some, oh, you'll like oh, this. I heard something. I think it, I think I, I wanted to bounce right back to the, sure. the direct, um, supervision for just a second. And I think we need to make that distinction. There's a couple of things out there. So direct supervision could be for the ancillary staff could be for, you know, maybe you have the medical assistant or phlebotomist who draws blood in your office. And, and what if something goes wrong? The whole purpose of that direct supervision is if the patient starts to bleed out, you know, maybe the phlebotomist didn't know they were on Coumadin or undiagnosed leukemia or something like that. It, to have that, that physician in the office to provide that immediate intervention is critical. And to take advantage of that by saying, well, we'll just have them on the phone available when they're in the operating room or when they're on vacation or when they're whatever that case may be, it, it almost feels a little irresponsible. And do the malpractice insurances know that these practices are utilizing that virtual direct supervision for ancillary staff? That's just being devil's advocate, like saying, 
think about how bad it could go. Not that we ever want to, but the, the old saying, prepare for the worst, right? Um, yeah. And no, hope for you've the best. Seen it, you've seen it for residents. And I think sometimes that can be a good thing. So when they're, when they're virtually supervising residents who are seeing patients, I think because of staff shortages, I'm seeing that more yeah. and more. And, um, you know, people are trying to see as many patients as they can, but you can't be in two places at once. And so they're in multiple hospitals and they're like, okay, I got to check in with the residents who have to be supervised in like teaching facilities and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think that's actually probably a good thing on the, yeah. the virtual supervision, as long as it's not abused and you are in person checking in on occasion. But when I see it just routinely applied, I think that's what you're, you and I are talking about. Yeah. Um, the other thing, and I'm just going to pivot to, to crossing state lines. Oh boy. Oh my goodness. So this is another thing that I think a lot of the states didn't want to have mandates. So they said, okay, we'll buy in. What we're talking about is you're a physician that's in New York and your patient now went, you know, we call them snowbirds. They went down to Florida and on yeah, where, where Christine is located, and uh, and I'm in California, so we're we're very good friends from across the the, the country. But uh, you know, they go down to Florida, and they're there six months out of the year or so. And so, um, the, a lot of their doctors who were up north, New Jersey, New York, they're seeing them virtually, which again during the pandemic that was fine until it wasn't fine, and you had to look at state rules. And Florida was one of the first in 2021. They're like, okay, we want our fees back. So unless you're licensed here right. um, and you're not part of the, I think it's called a co-op or. Um, it's, it's the an, interstate compact. It, compact, interstate and compact. And Florida doesn't participate no, in the interstate does California. compact. Either does mm -hmm. California. That's right. And so um, if you're not part of that, which means you can cross lines and be licensed in other states because you have a central license, uh, then you could be treating without a license but it's where the patient is located at the time of the virtual encounter and where the physician is located and where they are licensed at that time. So if the patient's in Florida, the doctor would have to be licensed there. If the doctor's in New York, they have to be licensed there. But let's say the doctor's on vacation and they are still gonna see a patient just real quick and they are in North Carolina and the patients in Florida, they would still have to be licensed in North Carolina. Yeah. And here's something that, that Reed told us, he's one of our executive members, Reed Tinsley at the NSCHBC. He just put it out there, one of our education uh, committee meetings, he goes, yeah, now there's tax implications. I'm like, to what? Oh yes, I heard I about that. I didn't know about that, Christine. Yes. He's like, yes. yeah, they if were you making patient, money in other yeah. states. If you make money in other states, it's kind of like a professional sporting team. You know, if you have a golf tournament in this state that has taxes, but you live in a state that doesn't, you still have to pay the taxes on where you did it. You know, that's why I heard UFC fighting doesn't have, uh, you know, contests here in California because our taxes suck here. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like, no, we don't go to California. It's not worth it to anybody. We go to, you know, either, you know, we go to Nevada or we go to Dubai. We go out of country. But it's it's interesting because I th what Medicare did, and I think this is terrible, is that they kind of gave, gave the impression yeah. at the height of the pandemic and even through 2021 that... You could see any patient you want anywhere they were in the country. And then all of a sudden in 2022, in April, they came out with a with a one-time published guidance that said, well, not so fast. If the states didn't say you could, could, anything we say doesn't really count. The states have to say it as well. So it's states' jurisdiction. 
And I had a lot of doctors, all of a sudden, a lot of clients going, hey, you told me to look at the state and you sent me the information, but we didn't because we saw on TV that the president mm -hmm. at the time, whether it be who we have now or who we had before, had said we could do it. And then HHS or CMS said we could do it, but they never said we could. And now our malpractice is questioning what we did after well, it, it went back. It's not only that, Terry, is that people saw, again, like the president or CMS make yeah. a comment and as assumed that all payers were following this guidance. Right, right. And that was that is still to this day not the case where no. you have to remember that we have our federal payers, our government payers, and we have our private payers. And that's the uniqueness of our healthcare system is that we have a nice mixture of both. But those private payers, those commercial payers, they are not, they're not covered by any of the federal guidelines that come out they have their own proprietary guidelines yeah they they have to they have to look at payment or policies you have to be on top of this as well and every payer is different unfortunately there's not a, a you know basically a commercial plan that's it's everybody has a different conversation about that i saw something in a <laughs> different policy i saw something in united healthcare that said you had to be in a clean space and you couldn't be in your car well, I had patients that were driving to Starbucks because they offer free Wi-Fi and sitting in the parking lot to get their virtual care because they didn't have, you know, high-speed internet yeah. at home. And United Healthcare is like, well, we don't do that. So I'm just like, wow. Well, another thing to remember, Terry, uh, talking about payers, I recently finished a Cigna audit and Cigna has a, a, a policy that you must be using a HIPAA compliant platform to provide telehealth services or audio only services, um, which there's a, they don't really cover audio only in this particular audit that I was reviewing. However, um, a lot of people don't realize that the Office of Civil Rights never said you could use applications. They said, here's what we'll do. It's while you're getting a HIPAA compliant software in place, we know that, you know, the pandemic, you're not fully ready. We're just going to turn a blind eye and hope that you're using a, a forward-facing application until you get your HIPAA compliant application right. in place. Not that you were going to be able to use FaceTime indefinitely. And I still see providers to this very day that didn't get that message and are still using FaceTime to do telehealth services with their patients. Yeah. Those and, aren't reimbursable. No, and Skype and Google Hangouts. And remember, right. people said, well, I use Zoom. And I said, okay, so Zoom, like what Christine and I are, you know, recording on for, for our podcast, that we could be we could be Zoom bombed at any time. This is not HIPAA compliant. Oh, I've had that happen. Me too, me too. But oh, how awkward is that? You have to have Zoom for healthcare. Remember, right. if it is an app or if it is a platform that you don't pay for, it's probably not HIPAA compliant. And the Office of Civil Rights, the OCR, came out and said that they gave a 90-day extension after the end of the public health emergency, and everyone had to have HIPAA compliance in their platforms for delivery of telehealth by August 9th of 2023. So we, we've had, like Christine said, we've had a lot of people saying, well, I didn't know. that That's not an excuse. Right. This has been on every possible social media. This has been on every possible published guidance. It is your responsibility to not only take your educational webinars that we put out, I think, Christine, what do we teach one almost once a month, it seems like? Yeah. All the time. 
Um, you know, look at the NSCHBC website. We always have them. Um, look at Christine's and my own website, uh, terryfletcher.net. What's your website? Sterling Global Solutions, S-T-I-R-L-I-N-G, Global Solutions. Yeah. Uh, but Terry, I wanted to remind everyone, you know, one of the things that I get a lot is how do you stay on top of all of this information? And the truth of the matter is it's hard for yes. the individual practices and organizations to, and that's why our organization, the NSCHBC, is so important. You know, having a consultant that that you can reach out to and you can ask for the most up-to-date information or bring a consultant on, on uh, hire a consultant to come in and provide you with that information, that is priceless. Think about all of the audits that are happening right now, all the overpayments that are being recouped, that letter, that additional documentation request letter that you received. Um, sometimes those things could all be mitigated if you had a great consultant on your team. It's true. And I will have a article up on the NSCHBC at the beginning of January called the telehealth fact sheet uh, for your office. So you will have that. You can also find a version of it at the NAMIS site, namis.co. Um, Christy and I both write for that site. Mm -hmm. So make sure you are finding this information from credible sources because telehealth is here to stay. You just need to know in what capacity to make sure that you are appropriate for individual payers, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever you're taking. Okay, so Christine, I'm gonna wrap it up. This We'd like to thank you for being our guest today and really thank appreciate it. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I always love chatting with you and I, I really love chatting about telehealth, so I appreciate it. Me too. To find Christine, you go to the NSCHBC website, click on Find a Consultant and type in her first name. It's Christine with a C and you will find her. Also, as a reminder, the NSCHBC.org website offers monthly free webinars on a variety of topics, as well as quarterly Medicare regulatory updates. Please go to the NSCHBC.org and clip, click on the tab Upcoming Education. Our free webinar for next month, you definitely want to check that out. That is about some of the new um, business consultants and entities that have to have some new forms filled out for 2024, and it's important that your clients also know that. So that is it for us today, everyone. Make it a great day, a great rest of your month, and thank you for listening to the NSCHBC podcast. My name is Terry Fletcher. Thank you for listening to the NSCHBC Edge podcast. Join us on the second Tuesday of each month as our consultants tackle the complexities of navigating the business of medicine. You can reach us on the web at nschbc.org, the National Society of Certified Healthcare Business Consultants.